Good morning. It is Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg. We are here live on this second National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Our full programming lineup will be here through the day. And then the Bomber pregame starts at 5 o'clock. Mr. Mackling, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Brett McGarry. How are you doing on this uh, Friday? Decidedly different day for a lot of folks. It's a day of reflection. Uh, most of the kids, if not all the kids, are out of school today. And, and many Manitobans have the day off as well. That's right. And you can feel free to weigh in at 204-780-6868 if you are working or if you are not working. I know that in this building, for example, we are essentially the only ones here today. Global News Morning is doing um, national programming today. Although it looks like they're having some technical difficulties on uh, Global this morning. But um, yeah, there I saw. I know that Corey Callahan is here. He's going to be doing some live reporting for the national stuff. But our FM friends are, are off today uh, because it's a day to listen. And it would be, I think, kind of weird if our FM pals... We're here, you know, sort of goofing off and, and joking around. And not that's not to downplay what they do. You know, I love our FM friends, but, you know, we have, we're in a different format. And it's important that we are here to discuss with you live and share some important stories and introduce you to some important people today. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, that was the underlying, if not maybe not the overriding message from one year ago today was just this notion that today is a, a day of listening. We have a platform where we're privileged to have and we're going to share that with some special people in our community over the next four hours or so here on the start. And then Loren McNabb will do the same from 10 till 12. And we'll goof off a little bit because, you know, we have to goof off once in a while on this show. And uh, I promise you that uh, we'll have some laughs along the way. But as you mentioned, uh, perfect word. It's about listening today. And I want to say thank you, Greg. Yesterday I, I remarked that I do not own any orange clothing. And uh, last year for the orange shirt day, I didn't have an orange shirt. And I, I have sort of kept my eyes open in my travels. But I don't, outside of going to the grocery store or or whatever, I, I don't really get out to places where one might be able to purchase an orange shirt. And you pointed out that there is a fabulous local organization that had some left and you went and got some after. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And I think we got two of uh, the last of some of their shirts. Apparently, after I let uh, folks know just before 10 o'clock that you could get some of these shirts at Mama Way at 445 King Street, uh, the they basically were sold out by the time I got there. Oh, wow. They were sold out of every size uh, except for extra large, and I think you got the last large one oh, in the boy. building. Uh, actually, I got a double extra large. Who am I kidding? Uh, <laughs> but while I was there, they're going to have an event uh, this morning. Of course, they're commemorating uh, Truth and Reconciliation today and, and the National Day of Reconciliation they're going to be unveiling an incredible monument uh, to Indigenous culture. Uh, I got a chance to take a sneak peek at it yesterday. I promised I wouldn't say too much, <laughs> but um, this is a beautiful monument that's going to sit uh, at, in the front courtyard at 445 King. And I'm working on trying to convince 
the organizers and those involved to uh, give us a sneak peek on the radio, maybe with Loren this morning. All right. So we have much to discuss through the day for the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, including, and we'll just tease this right now, at 635, there's been ongoing discussion at the legislature as to what's going to happen with this day in terms of it being a statutory holiday. Well, we learned yesterday what is going to happen. And uh, needless to say, Greg and I were both shocked at what happened. So that's coming up at 635. Yeah, we'll have that discussion for sure. Uh, but we, uh, we have other things to tell you about it today as well. You mentioned a monument being unveiled. Well, there's another monument of sorts that I believe, is it tomorrow? It is tomorrow afternoon, True North Square. The Dale Howard Chuck statue will be unveiled, and the Winnipeg Jets are inviting anyone, whether you have tickets for tomorrow night's game against the Edmonton Oilers preseason game. The Jets won last night in Montreal, by the way, in case you didn't catch it here on CJOB. They're inviting everyone to come down to uh, salute, to honor uh, the late, great Dale Howard Chuck. I'll be there with my kids and uh, looking forward uh, to seeing that masterpiece uh, unveiled uh, once and for all. So we'll have more on that at 7, just after 7.15 for you. And of course, Bombers tonight, the Riders. Blue Bombers. I, I speculated about how many tickets were left. I knew that the Blue Bombers had announced earlier this week, Brett, that they were over 30,000 tickets sold. And I said, oh boy, looks like they're on their way to a sellout. Then last night I was at one of my boys' football games and was uh, scrolling through the social media while the, in a lull in the action. And uh, the Blue Bombers said they had only 350 tickets left. Oh, wow. As of last night for uh, tonight's game against Saskatchewan. So, indeed, it appears as though the Blue Bombers will have a second straight sellout uh, this month, uh, both games featuring a visit uh, by the Green Riders from the West. So, yeah, it should be a nice evening for football. The high today, 21. Going to be a little bit cooler tonight, going down to 8 degrees. Would that be a situation where... You show up at the game, say, 5.30, 6, even 7 o'clock, wearing lighter clothes, but maybe at halftime you got to scoot into the bomber store <laughs> for for something a little warmer? If you come unprepared, yes, uh, at least bring a credit card or your debit card yeah. for a hoodie or a jacket. Uh, I would suggest bringing a jacket tonight for sure, although, you know, the way that people are packed into that stadium, and if you're patronizing the rum hut, as an example, you might not need a jacket. I remember when I went to the Banjo Bowl, I guess it would have been 2019. It was that very kind of situation. I had a long sleeve t-shirt on, but it wasn't enough. And at halftime, I ran in to get a jacket. And I was one of what looked like half the stadium doing the (laughs) same thing. Wade Miller is probably trying to source every single royal blue hoodie. In Western Canada right now, can you get it here by noon? (laughs) And how quickly can you put a W on it? (laughs) Mackling and McGarry McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg today. We are broadcasting live on the second National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And in a moment, we are going to tell you about something that we both found quite surprising at the legislature yesterday. Question of the day at cjob.com for credit aid. Struggling with debt? 
Call 204-987-6890, creditaid.ca. A new poll shows Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev has overtaken Justin Trudeau as the preferred candidate for Prime Minister. What's your preference? And indeed, overwhelming result at cjob.com. 56% say Pierre Poiliev, 22% Justin Trudeau, 11% Jagmeet Singh, and 10% other. And we will be updating that question soon. And it's going to have to do with what we are about to discuss, because it was about a month ago that the PC government said they plan to make the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation a statutory holiday. But that clearly did not happen in time for this year. And yesterday in the Manitoba legislature, the government voted down a private member's bill introduced by NDP MLA for Kiwatanuk, Ian Bushy, which would have made September 30th a provincial holiday. All those opposed to the motion, please rise. Okay. Honorable Mrs. Stephenson. Honorable Mrs. Stephenson. Honorable Mr. Reyes. Honorable Mr. Reyes. Honorable Mr. Cullen. Honorable Mr. Cullen. Honorable Ms. Squires. Honorable Ms. Squires. Honorable Mr. Iwasco. Honorable Mr. Iwasco. Honorable Mr. Johnson. No, yeah, Honorable Mr. Lajmodia. Mrs. Cox. Mrs. Cox. Mr. Khan. Mr. Khan. Mr. Isley. And so it went. Each and every one of the elected MLAs uh, representing the Conservative Party, the PC Party in Manitoba, uh, said nay to this private member's bill. And here is a a text from listener Brad. I want to say I'm disgusted with our government for the fact they didn't pass the Orange Shirt Day bill yesterday in the legislature. And then after the fact, they had the nerve to stand up and clap after the bill was defeated. And so I, they clapped. I knew, I, I knew I'd seen video of the vo- vote, so I played some of that for you. And sure enough, Brett. Yes, they clapped. We would love to play for you Labour, Consumer Protection and Government Services Minister Reg Helwer's comments and explanation of the government's vote in his own voice. So it is a provincial day of recognition. To pass this legislation would mean that we are doing less in Manitoba to recognize Yeah, we can't hear that, so you certainly can't. So Helwer says, quote, to pass this legislation would mean that we are doing less in Manitoba to recognize September 30th, not more. Helwer has said, has, has had discussions with various Indigenous groups as well as business groups to craft suitable legislation. One more quote, if this bill passed today, it would mean all those consultations were not necessary and I think it would be difficult to have future consultations if I didn't take those into account in any legislation I may bring forward and just to throw this out there Brett next year September 30th falls on a Saturday so what are the odds this decision gets left until after next fall's scheduled provincial election mm, that's interesting yeah i wonder that if they if they so if they say said a month ago that they were planning to make it a statutory holiday i wonder why the change of heart i don't know if this was uh you know consultations with further further groups i know that uh you know a stat holiday costs a lot of money for small businesses for example um but the, the comment about doing we would be doing less to recognize September 30th, not more, if we pass this legislation. I was actually thinking about that on the way in. Like, if they make it a stat holiday and more people end up having the day off, is that sort of counterproductive for what the day 
is meant to do? And I don't know the answer to that. I just no, sort of think out loud as I'm riding the cab. Well, look, my kids are off school today. Yeah. There are a couple of different events, several events, uh, several and many of which we will outline for you as we make our way through the morning, which uh, I would love to have been able to attend with them today. One in particular begins at 10 o'clock. Well, I get off the air at 10 o'clock. That's an impossibility for me to make it to a location where an event begins at 10. There are certainly other things that uh, will be happening later on in the day. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting discussion because it's a discussion we also have around Remembrance Day. Mm-hmm. There are some who feel that it's a day of observance. The fact that it's a holiday is meant to ensure that you are able to af- attend certain events in recognition and observance of Remembrance Day. I, I, don't, I don't have the answer here, but I think what, what you saw yesterday was the government saying no to a private member bill introduced by the opposition. They're saying, no, we're not going to be forced into painted into corner. We're going to continue our consultations. We said we were intending to make it a statutory holiday. We'll do it on our timeline, not anybody else's. Let us know what you think at 204-780-6868. And once again, we are going to make this the subject of our question of the day at cjob.com, which once again is for credit aid struggling with debt. Call 204-987-6890, creditaid.ca. It's Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg. And by the way, if you have any traffic tips, feel free to shoot us a text when it is safe for you to do so at 204-780-6868. And we are broadcasting live today. This is not a best of situation. This is a live day of programming for the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And right now we want to talk about reflection, Mr. Mackling, because that's what today is. Yeah, one of our listeners just texted, how are people supposed to attend recognition events or take time to reflect while at work? And so that's part of the discussion and uh, part of the of the thoughts that uh, you'll be sharing with us. Uh, do you agree with that or not? 204-780-6868. But we want to talk about how we personally reflect. What is your go-to activity? How do you go about reflecting uh, maybe calming down, maybe, you know, uh, Brett, you and I are in a in a club that many are in. Uh, uh, we, we've lost our mums over the last several years, and, and I know we just celebrated the 20th anniversary of my mum's passing, and we gathered as a family at my brother's cottage, all my siblings and my stepdad and the wives and the grandkids and the cousins, and we sat and we looked at hundreds and hundreds of pictures my mom wasn't in all of them, but she was tied to pretty much every single one in one way or another. Uh, either she had taken the picture, she was in it, or she was at the event that was documented in those pictures. And the stories that came out of flipping through those pictures was very, very therapeutic. And so uh, when I talk about reflecting and, and taking time to, to take a look back and to get within myself, uh, pictures are, are a, a really uh, good way to do that for me. Well, I'm glad you got to have that experience with your family, Mackling. That's great. Um, Jeff Braun, what about you? 
Uh, I guess for me, it usually happens when I'm out have, taking a walk or whatever. That seems to be a good time to clear your mind and think about things. Uh, usually when I go for a walk, it, the only thing going through my mind is left, right, left, right. <laughs> but uh, when there's stuff to be thought about, it's, it's usually when I'm walking down the, the heart trail enjoying some nature. Yeah, because you live, uh, does your walk take you through the, the Assiniboine Forest at all? Uh, that's a bit of, that's too much of a oh, hike. Okay, if I go for far. a bike ride, I can get out there, but, uh, going for a walk, I, I don't have that much ambition. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's fair. Yeah. Sorry. I always get that mixed up. We have, and we've, we've been through this before. You know, you're probably thinking, well, Gary, come on, man, get it together. Poitras, what about you? Uh, yeah, I guess everyone has or, or should have a way to do this. Eh? I, I mean, there's like, there's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, you know, however you're able to find clarity and reflection. I, I think it's a wonderful thing for me. You know, it's going to go into my shul, going to my synagogue. Uh, there's, there's no other time uh, during the week that I can sort of give myself permission to kind of just sit and think and sort of contemplate um, pretty much everything. And, you know, I, I find I almost need it. You know what I mean? Like if, if I don't take that time, um, it affects me over the rest of the week. I feel a little bit more uneasy. Um, do you just go yeah, by yourself sometimes? No, I go with my, my wife and I go, and okay. we got kind of, a, we have a family there and stuff like they're, they're my family. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's nice. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. I, I, I've, and I've always wanted, I think you're, you, you can just wander, you can just walk into a church, can't you? Yeah. Well, some of them are closed down because there's like been a series of incidents and stuff like that. I know that, um, like people have gone in and, and, you know, done some, some bad stuff. So I think some of them closed, but some of them are remained open. You'd have to, you'd have to look, um, which ones are open, but it's, it's, it's a nice place just to kind of, you know, wander into and just kind of think. Yeah. And then that's the reason I ask, and I think we've talked about this before, but we have so many beautiful houses of worship in this city. And uh, I've always wondered what, what's it like in there? Because I'm not a man of religion. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not that I, I don't have a, problem with it it's just not my not my life but but the idea of being able to walk into one of these beautiful little buildings and just sit and have that quiet moment of reflection strikes me as kind of attractive Mackling. yeah a hundred percent and it's you know today my mom passed away found the chapel at hsc and i like you brett am not a man of religion but i have a great deal of respect for those who who find solace who find focus and 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 center themselves that way um it's the only time in my life i've ever prayed and my mom was lying on a ventilator and you could tell that she was struggling and that maybe the time was ticking and I went and I found a chapel and uh, one of my good friends was with me and I said, how do I do this? What, like, what do I do? Just talk. And I did. And I just, I asked that if, if today was my mom's day, August 27, 2002, if, if that was going to be her day, I asked that it be painless and that, and that she not suffer. And if that she had to go, that that, the, that that be the way. And within a half an hour, she was gone. And there's that, that power uh, to just be alone with your thoughts and to, to, speak, your, to speak your truth out loud was uh, pretty powerful. Forte, what about you? 
Uh, I'm with Braun with the, the walk. Uh, taking a walk really, really clears my mind. But uh, something I also like to do is just uh, sit on my balcony, have like no music on, just listen to all the sounds that are going around, soak in the atmosphere, look at because I'm above the trees, so just look out uh, above the trees and just look out, and it's uh, really nice. I also like to do put on some music, some something more softer, depending on like what my mood is, and sometimes I'll just pace in my apartment for like an hour, just listening to music, and I'll just pace. <laughs> and I don't know why. It just, to me, that's soothing, and you can really reflect on your thoughts. So uh, You just pace? Just pace. It sounds nerve-wracking to me. No. I get into my head, and I get to think, and like, I'm hearing the music, and I can I can think. I can hear my thoughts. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, to, to me, and like pacing, it's just, to me, sometimes it's better than just sitting there. Jeff Braun, what do you think? Uh, instead of going for a walk, how about you just pace back and forth in your living room? Yeah, no, I'm with you, Brett. That uh, That is just uh, pure anxiety right there. I don't think that would help me at all. <laughs> you know what? And you mentioned the balcony, and that's something that I once upon a time loved to do, and uh, I, it's just kind of hit me. Why haven't I been doing that? It's because they're doing some these this weird construction in my apartments uh, on, on the, the parking pad. And because there's uh, there's like us, it's it's levels, Jerry. We're going to build levels, <laughs> so you got to drive up one ramp. That and the, the the top layer of the parking pad sort of is the also the roof of the underground parkade. And they've been doing this weird work where they're like carving out. It almost like from up up top, it looks like they're carving out jigsaw puzzle pieces. And I have there, so they're sort of carving halfway into the concrete. And I I don't know what they've done. So they've huh. are, they've cut out a few a few pieces, but they've been doing it for like I think all summer. Pretty quiet work too. <laughs> it's just constant, constant. So uh, I have not really been able to go out and sit quietly on the balcony, which is something that I do enjoy doing. So, I mean, feel free to weigh in at 204-780-6868. No prizes up for grabs, but if you'd like to share with us, how do you take those moments to reflect, uh, to help you calm down, to think about the day, to blow off steam, whatever, something that helps you just recenter yourself? It's Mackling and McGarry McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg today. If you're looking for something to do tomorrow afternoon, you may want to head downtown to help pay tribute to one of the best hockey players of all time. You get to a point where there's so many you forget, but, uh, you know, obviously scoring 50 at home was great, and the way it happened, uh, you know, shorthanded goal and... uh, just the way the play happened and, and the way the goalie came out, I don't know. Those are moves you don't think about beforehand, I can tell you that. And, but I'm sure happy to see it go in. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the ovation from the crowd, you, you know, something you really appreciate. Power Chuck, he's going to get there first. Power Chuck moving right in. A shot, he's And, of course, not only was he one of the best players of all time, Brett, one of the greatest players for how he interacted with the community. He was such a big part of Winnipeg. He grew up here. He he came here as a a starry-eyed 18-year-old, signed his contract at Portage in Maine, came out of the back of a Brinks truck, all sorts of expectations heaped upon him as a young man, and he applied his trade in Winnipeg for 
for a solid decade, and I had uh, the absolute honour, the pleasure to watch him play so many games over the years. So tomorrow is a big deal for a lot of Winnipeg Jets fans, hockey fans in our city, in our province. Uh, tomorrow the Jets will honour the late great team legend and Winnipeg Jets Hall of Fame member. And, of course, he's a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame as well, Dale Howarchuk, with a statue which will be unveiled at True North Squares Plaza. That's at the corner of Honorary Dale Howard Chuck Way. Uh, most of us know it, know it as Graham Avenue and Hargrave Street prior to tomorrow's preseason game against the Edmonton Oilers. Some details here for you. Fans are encouraged to arrive as early as 4.30 with the ceremony beginning at 5.15 and the ceremony will last approximately 30 minutes and it's open to all fans with or without tickets to tomorrow night's preseason game versus the Oilers. And there are some road closures that will affect two partial blocks of Hargrave Street from north of St. Mary Avenue to south of Portage Avenue, as well as two blocks of Honorary Dale Howarchuk Way, Graham Avenue, between Donald Street and Carlton Street, beginning at 3 p.m. and reopening at 8 p.m. So the roads will be fully reopened at 8 p.m., well in time for the uh, the end of the Jets game, allowing you to exit the parkades as per usual. And they do say that access Access to some key Hargrave Street parkades, City Place Lot 1, adjacent to Canada Life Centre south of Portage, and Lot 4 north of St. Mary, those will be maintained. During the closure, City Place Lot 1 will be accessible via a right turn onto Hargrave hmm. from eastbound Portage, and City Place Lot 4 will be accessible as per usual. But it's quite, it was quite the production, get it, watching them get that statue in there. Uh, they had, uh, didn't they, like they had to get in a big crane? To lift that thing in, and I've walked past it a couple of times. It's all wrapped up and taped up. I was wondering if the guy, when the guys were getting it all set up, if they tried to sneak a peek. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they were tempted. the uh, The base incorporates Dale Howard Chuck's autograph. Oh, neat! And so tens of thousands of of hockey fans in the in these parts have Dale Howarchuk's autograph. It's unmistakable. I, I really looking forward to uh, a special ceremony tomorrow. It's Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is on connecting Winnipeg. Thank you very much for joining us. This is indeed a live broadcast. We are here today for National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And after Global News at 8 o'clock, we're going to tell you more about the Survivor's Walk and the second annual Orange Shirt Day powwow. Yeah, Kyle Mason is going to join us. And Kyle is a leader within the Indigenous community. And the walk today is actually honoring uh, his father, Dr. Raymond Mason. And so we'll learn a little bit more about Kyle's dad, the role he played uh, in truth and reconciliation and trying to make things better in our community, build bridges. And we'll speak to Kyle, who's been doing his best to build bridges since I met him probably two weeks after my first ever broadcast on CJOB. Oh, wow. Kyle was, I think, my third or fourth ever in-studio guest at 930 Portage once upon a time. Oh, right on. That's a neat piece of trivia. I didn't know that. Also, today at 835, we are going to speak with the creator of a new Canadian documentary airing tonight on the History Channel called True Story, uh, which examines how to move forward from Canada's colonial history at 9 905, you've been hearing his voice in Jeff Braun's newscasts, Michael Redhead Champagne. 
community activist. He's going to join us. And then at 9.35, we referenced this yesterday in an interview with the director for the Winnipeg Writers Festival, the International Writers Festival. Sheila North is going to join us to discuss her memoir, My Privilege, My Responsibility. But right now... Normally, the couch potatoes assemble on Fridays at 7.35, and maybe we'll sneak in uh, couch potatoes something in a little bit. But there's a big football game tonight, in case you didn't know. Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And we usually will talk to Derek Taylor, or maybe we'll talk to Doug Brown. But you know what? We thought today... Greg Mackling is an esteemed member of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers broadcast team here on 680 CJOB. I shouldn't laugh like that, but it still feels weird when people say that. An esteemed broadcaster or part of the broadcast team for the Bombers? Either combination of those words. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and Matt, yeah, he's a... Uh, so just to recap your involvement, you do the halftime... Halftime show with Ed Tate, and then, uh, of course, we broadcast live from the tailgate area at IG Field when we do the the two hour pregame. Doug and and uh, Derek, and then uh, Ed Tate, and of course Ted Wyman, and a cast of thousands, as Bob Irving always said. Well, it's quite the hike up to the the press box where the the broadcast booth where Derek and and Doug call the action, and so I I'm basically there to uh, make sure that there's no dead air while they make that 12, 13, 14 <laughs> minute hike. Uh, Christian O'Mell and I spend the last uh, 15, 16 minutes of the pregame show uh, giving our thoughts, our views on the upcoming game. Christian has an on-field interview and uh, that's how that breaks down. That's how that sets up. All right. And the reason Mr. Mackling is on the broadcast team is because, as you know, he is a He's an expert sportsing fan, and he is a Blue Bombers lunatic. So we're going to, I'm going to interview Mr. Mackling in this segment on the Blue Bombers game. Does that work for you, Mac? All right, let's do that. Okay. Why is it, for those who don't know, because look, not everybody is uh, into sports, and maybe they, they kind of know a little bit, but it's our job to sort of bring people into the circle, so to speak. So why is it such a big deal? when Saskatchewan comes to town. If I had to put one word on it, it's rivalry. It's a rivalry between two provinces that are very, very similar, that share a border, but see ourselves and see one another, I think, is quite different. And the Blue Bombers and the Rough Riders have been playing one another for a long, long time. And this game just has extra meaning because of that geographic proximity. We're in the middle of nowhere here. And so... You know, sports fans in the United States in particular are so lucky. If you're, I'll just give the example as a New York Yankees fan. They play these games at least once a year against their crosstown rivals, the New York Mets. They play games in Boston, which is really only a two and a half hour train ride from Manhattan. And then they have games in Baltimore and then they'll have, you know, National League games just down the road in Philadelphia. So you can go to a ton of road games if you want to, if you live in other locales. Well, guess what? The only reasonable drive to go and see the Blue Bombers play elsewhere is in Regina. And I think that has everything to do with why this rivalry tops all the others, not only with regard to the Blue Bombers and other teams, but re- with regard to rivalries across, uh, the, across the country. And then, of course, on the field, the Labor Day Classic, Saskatchewan typically does a really good job at making sure the Blue Bombers and their fans leave Regina unhappy. And the 2000 great, uh, 2007 rather, Grey Cup win 
Winnipeg and Saskatchewan played their only Grey Cup against one another and Saskatchewan comes out on top. I think that last 15 years is really stuck in the craw of Blue Bombers fans. And so uh, that has taken that rivalry to another level along with the creation of the Banjo Bowl. Why do their fans wear watermelons on their head? I have no idea, Brett McGarry. I wish I could tell you. I don't know what the origin of that is. In Green Bay, they wear cheese heads. Yeah. And so there's these great big giant styrofoam wedges of what look like Swiss cheese, but they're orange. I'm not exactly what kind of cheese they're they're trying to represent. And I don't know. Saskatchewan, I think, tends to liken themselves to the Green Bay Packers, the smallest market in professional sport. And so maybe they were just looking for something to connect with Green Bay on. Uh, that, that'll be my best guess. It's probably completely wrong. But uh, that would be the story I tell my grandchildren. And am I am I correct? You, you remember? Uh, ooh, I can't remember how long ago it's been now. When uh, the CFL unveiled those alternate jerseys, yes. alternate uniforms, and helmets, the, the Rough Riders had a watermelon helmet. It wasn't it. Was it disgusting? Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to remember. I know on those alternate jerseys they have watermelon. Little watermelon mm. icon sewn into the fabric. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's it's just one of those things that is uh, part of the uh, of being a fan of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. So the Bombers are coming off a bye week. Yep. Is that typically a good thing or a bad thing for I, the team? I think in this case, it's a very good thing. The Blue Bombers have been missing a couple of key pieces. They got uh, Brandon Alexander back for that that loss in Hamilton. He's such a key piece of that de- defense. They are still missing two key guys, uh, in my mind, on either side of the ball, Kyrie Wilson and Greg Ellingson, the receiver. If they could get those two individuals back and defensive back Nick Taylor, I think this is a a juggernaut team again. This is a team that might be as good as what we saw last season uh, down the stretch. So uh, this is a very good thing for regular season games. The Blue Bombers, in fact, have one more bye, but they have an opportunity here to put an exclamation mark on this season. And the intensity typically ramps up as the temperature drops. Yeah, the Bombers are 12-2, and which is an awesome record. They're way out in front of everybody, but they've had a lot of close games. They had to win a lot of close games, although their last game they got kind of waxed by... uh, Hamilton. So do you have any concerns? Like, i.e., are there any problem spots they need to improve on? Or is most of the the problems they might be experiencing due to those injuries? Yeah, I think a one injury, uh, the big name, and Cam mentioned it in sports, Jackson Jeffcoat will not play tonight. And when you pair Jackson Jeffcoat and Willie Jefferson as your defensive ends, quarterbacks standing back wanting to throw the ball downfield have to watch their front and their back. And so when you take one or the other out of the equation, I think it makes it just a tiny bit easier for the quarterback. And I think that's why you saw Dane Evans do what he did uh, a couple of weeks ago in Hamilton. He he really shredded that Blue Bomber secondary who have, you know, have it has gone on, undergone a, a lot of changes this season and are, are fighting some injuries right now in that secondary. So uh, I think the, the Jackson Jeffcoat injury, if it is a longer one, could could be a problem in terms of what the the Blue Bombers like to do, and that's to make sure the quarterback on the other side of the ball doesn't have a lot of time to find a receiver. And one final question for you, Mr. Mackling. 
Bombers, uh, what are they doing to mark the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation? Yeah, the Blue Bombers and their uh, relationship with the Indigenous communities of Manitoba is uh, extraordinary. So they're going to be welcoming many Indigenous guests. I know they're flying in some kids uh, from First Nations. Uh, They'll uh, also, of course, wear orange jerseys in the warm-up. They're wearing a a sticker on their helmet to recognize the significance of today. They'll have orange merchandise and, of course, that, that absolute gorgeous star blanket w logo will be on their helmets and they'll have uh, other merchandise as i understand it available for purchase tonight at the blue bomber store also a heads up there is a school supply drive presented by first student overview fans are encouraged to bring school supply donations to the bomber game the school supplies will be donated to southeast resource development council there will be bins outside of each of the main gates and the tailgate entrances for fans to drop off their donations save on foods is going to be giving away ten thousand. $10 Save on Foods gift cards to fans as they enter the game. And the food special, the game special for tonight, the mac and cheese dog. We tried the hot dog earlier this week. The Bombers dropped them off, and uh, it's awesome. So you can either get it a 7-inch or you can get a foot long. 7-inch for 10 bucks, foot long for 14 Highly recommended. It's messy, but uh, it's tasty. What, what does Joey say in the uh, truffle episode of Friends? Jam, good. Meat, good. Yeah, I, I like it. You put, <laughs> you put mac and cheese together with a hot dog. How can you possibly go wrong? It was delightful. So pregame at 5, kickoff at 7, right here on 680 CJOB. Go Blue. It is Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg today. And thank you very much for joining us this morning on this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. After Global News at 8.30, we are going to learn about a History Channel documentary honoring the day. It's called True Story, and we will share a quick preview of that and speak with the show's creator at 8.35. And... But later on this hour, we do have something to give away this morning. We have a $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza, so wait for your cue to call on that. Right now, we suggest you visit globalnews.ca or cjob.com for a complete list of events marking the second annual day for Truth and Reconciliation. And we want to tell you about one of those events as we start this hour. Yes, our guest helps organizations with the reconciliation journey, Brad. He's been a community leader focused on making change, supporting those who need it with practical solutions. He has had a genuine impact not only in his own neighborhood, but across the province. Let's welcome back to the start, Kyle Mason. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning. What does this day mean for you? Well, it means a lot of different things, but one, um, it, it means uh, honoring and remembering my father, but also means honoring my mother uh, and, and my ancestors and many other family members. But it also means uh, that there's work to do, uh, that there's uh, a lot of people to help along this journey of reconciliation. Now, you mentioned your father. Your father was a residential school survivor, a voice and advocate for survivors of residential schools, not only in Manitoba, but across Canada. So maybe just please tell us a little bit about Dr. Raymond Mason. Well, sure. First off, I'd like to point out, though, I, I, I hesitate to call these institutions schools because they're anything but actual schools. Uh, they were forced uh, places where children were kidnapped and uh, indoctrinated and often tortured and done a lot of horrible things to. 
So yeah, my father, uh, Dr. Raymond Mason, was one of these children who were forcibly removed from his family, from the arms of my, my grandmother. And he had to spend years in these institutions and it deeply impacted him, uh, deeply harmed him in many ways for a long, long time. Um, to the point that he was not able to be a healthy individual for m- many years and much of my youth. Thankfully though, um, he did do a lot of healing and a lot of work on himself and that allowed him to become a very strong advocate for fellow survivors and uh, he played a significant role behind the scenes often when it came to the, the development of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, the settlement um, and then he continued to fight, fight for day, uh, day school survivors up until the day he passed. Kyle, I've heard you refer to that sort of as the second half of your dad's life. Talk about mm-hmm. how, you know, was there was there truth and reconciliation within your family and uh, on that path to healing and, and to re-establishing a, that relationship with your dad? Yeah, uh, so, you know, obviously I have to compare it to the ages that I was. So I did not see uh, much of my father for over a decade, uh, mostly during my teen years. And then in my late teens, early 20s, my father reached out to me and we had a conversation where he um, he wanted to try and make amends. And, and initially, um, I, you know, being an angry young man, I basically just gave him a piece of my mind and told him all the different ways he failed me as a father. And he sat there quietly during this entire time, cried, and he said, absolutely, you're, you're right, uh, and I am sorry. And of course, at this time, I didn't fully understand his journey because uh, he had not really shared about uh, his uh, his trauma and his torture. Uh, I was just an angry, angry young man uh, who missed having a father. And um, but he said, "Yes, I am sorry. I hope to do better. I hope uh, we can build a relationship." And um, during that decade that I didn't see him, he was doing a lot of healing and a lot of work on himself uh, through counseling. Um, and he was trying to make amends with people in his life, including myself. And that began a 20-year-plus uh, journey of uh, slowly uh, he and I building up a relationship to the point the last uh, decade uh, he and I were very close, and particularly the last few years where I would get a phone call from my dad often uh, every couple hours, and uh, a few months after his passing, I'm still at the point where I... I I have to catch myself. I'm like, well, my dad has a cold yet. And then it, then it hits me. So for today, can you tell us about this morning's events, including the survivor's walk and the orange shirt day powwow? Uh, yeah, it's on a personal level. It's going to, it's going to mean a lot. It's going to be hard. I'm sure. Uh, last year at the first annual walk and powwow, I was um, helping my father around in a wheelchair. Uh, he was honored to participate in the grand entry. Uh, that meant a lot to him. Uh, he got recognized from 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 the speakers, and he really appreciated that. And I know he would absolutely love and appreciate um, what's being done for him today. And so, me and other family members will will go uh, in his place and uh, and remember my father. Kyle, what time do things get underway? Where can people gather? And and ultimately, uh, the powwow. What time does it start? And and how long will it go? 
Uh, well, everything starts, um, and this is, you know, I'm thankful to the uh, to the crew at uh, Weise uh, who are organizing all this and who have chosen to honor my father. So I'm very thankful to everybody at Weise. Uh But yeah, though the walk will be starting at the Forks at 11 a.m. and we'll be wake- making our way over to uh, the RBC Convention Center at one o'clock with the grand entry starting then. Uh, both things are free. Everybody and everybody's welcome to attend. Um, come out, um, hear our stories, see our dances, see our regalia, um, and uh, let's continue on the next step of reconciliation together. And what's the, do you know the route of the walk, just to give people a heads up uh, in terms of traffic and whatnot? No, sorry, I don't. Okay. All right. Well, we will we'll figure that out on our own. But we listen, we thank you so much for, for joining us, Kyle. Uh, we really appreciate the time that you've given us today. Thank you very much. Kyle Mason joining us live on 680 CJOB. The second annual Orange Shirt Day powwow, RBC Convention Center, the grand entry at 1 p.m. The Survivor's Walk starts at the Forks at the 11 a.m. I believe it's going to go up Main Street to Portage and then deke back to the convention center. Yeah, based what we've learned on the road closures uh, that are scheduled, that sounds exactly right, Brett. Uh, We want to let you know if you or your family member is a survivor of residential schools and you need support, there is a 24-hour crisis line available. The number is toll-free, and you can speak in confidence. That number is 800-721-0066. I'll say that number one more time. 800-721-0066. That is the number for residential school survivors' 24-hour crisis line. It's Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's a special day, of course. National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And after Global News at 9 o'clock, normally that's when we do our weekly Gab with Gabby, Gabrielle Marchand from Global News Morning. But we did it with her yesterday. And today, filling in for Gabby Marchand is the North End MC. Mr. Mackling. Yeah, Michael Champagne, community leader, activist. I'm not exactly sure what tags he appreciates these days. We'll find out from him. And we're taking a little bit of a different approach uh, with our conversation with Michael. Because I sat down to sort of, you know, I, we craft these segments and our introductions and, our, and, and some of our questions. And I just thought, you know what, why am I doing this? Today is about listening. So I texted Michael at 6.05 this morning. I said... My friend, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what we want to talk about with you and realizing what would you like to talk about with us? And so he's told me, and he'll share that with us in about a half hour's time. Oh, boy. Okay. I'm excited. Even more excited now. I always love talking to Michael Redhead Champagne, um, but this is going to be a good one. Right now, though, we want to tell you about how tonight... The History Channel debuts a new Canadian original documentary that explores the real and often misrepresented history of Indigenous peoples on the land that is now Canada. In honour of National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, True Story examines how to move forward from Canada's colonial history and achieve reconciliation by first learning, then facing the past. And here's a preview of tonight's special, A Short History of Throat Singing. Indigenous people's unique ways of being emerged over thousands of years of living in diverse geographic locations. When the Inuit played games, there was a deeper purpose to them. They built strength, endurance, and resistance to pain. 
But it wasn't just all work and no play. Originally, throat singing was a form of entertainment among Inuit women, while the men were away on hunting trips. The women played the game together, and they would imitate sounds that they would hear from the environment. You might hear the wind, it might be walruses, polar bear, six, six little ground squirrels uh, running around. You gotta sort of put your mind frame into some of the sounds you might hear up in the north. The women would use three different parts of their throat here, the back part in the middle and their front. And then when they play the game together, they would face each other because they need to keep in rhythm with each other. One person sort of does one part of a sound and the other person does another part of the sound. And they go as long as possible and you have to keep rhythm. You have to develop a pattern in the song to make the song possible. The person to make the mistake first or the person to laugh first is the one who loses the game. Once again, that is from True Story, a Canadian-produced uh, documentary airing tonight at 9 o'clock on the History Channel. Danae Robinson is the executive producer, creator, director, and showrunner. <sighs> That's a mouthful. Danae, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Pleasure is all ours, so thank you for making time for us on this special day. What is, what is True Story about? Absolutely. Um so True Story is unique in the sense that uh, this is the first um, documentary feature to be broadcasted on the History Channel through or told by Indigenous voices only. Um, all of our experts come from all across Turtle Island, and uh, we ha- it's an Indigenous production company. Our narrator is Dio Horn. Um, she's been on Reservation Dogs. Um, Letter Kenny. Uh, so it's all Indigenous and told by Indigenous voices. And the clip that you just shared is um, a lot of what the beginning of the documentary is about. It's about the histories that existed on these lands prior to contact, those thousands of years of ways of life, ways of being, um, you know, our governance systems, our political structures that we had and that we lived by. And of course, the important roles that women played and do play in our communities, the important roles of elders, two-spirit, indigi-queer people. Um, And then, of course, we move into contact and how those relationships were, you know, um, in in the beginning, mutually beneficial, those of trade um, partnerships. And then how did that change? How did it change from, you know, partnerships to creation of the Indian Act and residential schools? So uh, that is where the documentary will take us. You say it's the first documentary of its kind to be entirely told by Indigenous voices. What was... uh the barrier in, in getting something like that done prior to this? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think just Indigenous people, Indigenous voices were not um, represented as much. Um, I think a lot of the times our histories were told by non-Indigenous people a lot of the times. And I think this is the first time where we are telling our own histories, our own stories. We talk about thousands of years versus, you know, first contact between 
between European settlers or prospective European settlers and the first peoples of Turtle Island, Danae, I think some of us have a real hard time comparing that 300 or so years versus the thousands of years that first peoples occupied these lands. Is, does it, is that part of the issue here, just that comprehension of just how long, how established these cultures, these ways of life were? Absolutely. I think, I, I, and I think, and that's another form that, um, that people are not aware of the thousands of histories of, um, the thousands of years of history that existed, our ways of life. We were never told these. Um, we were never told about the political structures that existed, the, the roles that we had, um, the roles, responsibilities, um, and, uh, I think we were told a very generic, homogenized version of what Indigenous people were prior to contact. So what are some ways, Danae, and again, our guest is Danae Robinson, the executive producer, creator, director, and showrunner of True Story, a new Canadian documentary airing tonight at 9 o'clock on the History Channel. What are some ways that we as individuals can contribute to moving the conversation around reconciliation and historical education forward? I think one of that, of course, is listening um, and understanding that this is not just Indigenous history, this is Canadian history, and that this is a shared history. The legacy of residential schools impact us all. Um, You know, people by not knowing about them, by not being taught the accurate history of what happened and how that and how those wounds are still fresh today. They're very much fresh today. Um, I, I come from a family of residential school survivors and I am the first generation that did not attend residential schools. So that, that, that tells you right there how fresh these wounds are. And um, by understanding when people want acknowledgement, it's, it's not an attack on you know, the general Canadian population. It's just people wanting their voices heard, their stories heard, acknowledgement that these horrific things happened. And the only way we could prevent anything from this happening ever again is by acknowledging it and by learning from these mistakes. Danae, if there's one thing you hope viewers take away from this documentary, what would it be? Um, just a wanting to learn more, um, that realizing that this documentary is, is it's, it's really a primer of the thousands of years, as I mentioned, of history that, that happened on these lands and just um, uh, creating an, a, a space for people wanting to learn more and to, to come with an open heart and an open mind. Well, the two-hour documentary premieres tonight at 9 on the History Channel. Danae, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate this. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Danae Robinson, the executive producer, creator, director, and showrunner of True Story, a new Canadian documentary airing tonight at 9 o'clock on the History Channel. And a reminder that the Residential School Survivor Crisis Line is 1-800-721-0066. That's 1-800-721-0066.
We are very excited about this segment on this day, National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Our next guest is insightful, passionate, positive, and determined to build bridges. And Brett, I was first introduced to the North End MC as part of a TEDx event over a decade ago. And at that time, Michael was introduced as the founder of Meet Me at the Bell Tower, a weekly gathering on Selkirk Avenue. I think it was 6 o'clock on Friday nights, if memory serves. Michael, you can correct me if I'm wrong. That was an event designed, as far as I can tell, to simply build community. Fair enough? Build community and stop violence. Welcome back to the start, Michael. Great to speak with you. How are you today? Um, Well, today's a really solemn day for me, and I think for many... Uh, Indigenous people that have family members or were personally affected by Indian residential schools. Today is a very solemn day for us. Um, and so I'm, I'm feeling pretty serious and uh, reflecting quite a bit today on where we're at well, in Winnipeg. Well, as I said to you in my text message this morning as I was crafting our, our segment, as we would say behind the scenes, I was like, it doesn't matter what I want to talk about. What is Michael want to talk about. So I sent you a text message and you said, hey, um, 94 uh, calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but there's one that's particularly important to you. Fair to say? Yeah. Well, Brett and I and and our, our legions of, of listeners uh, are going to sit back and listen to you talk and take it away. The microphone's yours, my friend. Well, first of all, I want to say Thank you for, for thinking of uh, me and for having, I call that cultural humility when you are reflective of what's happening in the world around you and you recognize, hey, maybe somebody else could make a decision. So thank you um, for that. And the decision that I wanted to make today was to talk with uh, folks about Truth and Reconciliation Commission Calls to Action. Um, Because the one thing that I've been hearing the most throughout this past week from non-Indigenous people is, what can we do to be good partners in reconciliation? And so um, I've been able to connect with a number of different groups this week, and I often will say to the folks that, um, you know, I, I will ask those groups, which Truth and Reconciliation Commission call to action are you working on as an individual? And then I'll go a bit bigger. What are you working on as a family? What are you working on as a workplace? And so that's a a common question that I've been asking folks, but frequently I'll get responses back from these groups that they actually haven't read the calls to action yet. And so what I want to just say to anyone who's asking, what can I do to be a partner in reconciliation? We have these beautiful documents of the national, of national scope where Indigenous families had to share their trauma and their pain um, from systems of family separation. And that refers to both the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It also refers to the calls for justice from the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. Um, It also includes the international document, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And so these documents hold within them uh, stories and pain and trauma that my relatives and Indigenous people have shared, and the recommendations have been crafted in such a way that non-Indigenous people can be organized and focused in the way that they react or take action in response to those calls. 
And so the number one call to action out of the 94 TRC calls to action is reduce the number of Indigenous children in care. And the amount of folks who don't know that that's the number one call to action is alarming to me, especially considering the fact that we are in the midst of what a lot of folks are calling the Every Child Matters movement. And so to me, if Every Child Matters in a province like Manitoba, where there are 10,000 plus children in care, 90,000 of whom are Indigenous, then we got to get working on addressing child welfare. Um, TRC call to action number one, even as a city, applies to us because how many of the folks that are struggling with homelessness um, are have lived experience in both the child welfare system or are themselves Indian residential school survivors? Because those folks out there on the street are the children that made it home. So if every child matters, we got to take care of every child, the ones uh, in the unmarked graves, the ones that made it home, and the ones that are today trying to raise up their families throughout that intergenerational trauma and pain. But we need non-Indigenous people to walk with us. And I don't want um, Indigenous people to have to parade out their hurt every National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. I feel like this should be a time for non-Indigenous people to highlight the actions that they're taking and demonstrating that they heard what Indigenous people said in these calls for action, calls for justice, and international reconciliation documents. You, so apparently I had a lot to say. Yeah, well, I know I know you could continue, and maybe we'll take a break and come back and, and discuss uh, some different aspects of what you say. But when you, when you say children, I know that there's a number that legally applies to that. We've had conversations over the years about aging out of the system and the supports that that simply disappear based on your age, not necessarily your ability to look after yourself. Is that still a concern, Michael? It very much is. Um, we as Winnipeg have to do a better job of providing supports to young people as they age out of child welfare so that they don't go right from one system, a family separation CFS, into homelessness and feeling dis- dispossessed of land and, and disconnected from family and dislocated from belonging. And so that's one. If we really think every child matters as Winnipeg, we have statistical child-related problems that we could be working on. We had you on on this date last year, and one of the things you said was that you hoped as we move forward that we don't lose momentum, that we keep the momentum going with this movement. How, a year later, what's your take on what's happened? One year later, I think that I have been pleasantly surprised by um, pockets of leadership that I've seen in non-Indigenous systems. I've been seeing a lot of folks taking a serious look at those uh, cost to action, costs for justice I was mentioning, and seeing how they can take legitimate action and use their circle of influence or any privilege that they may happen to have and exert pressure so that Indigenous people can have a better life. And so from the Every Child Matters perspective, that means often doing what we can to support parents that are working to reunify with their children and, of course, supporting young people that are aging out of the child welfare system. So to me, those are the main things that 
we need to be focusing on as Winnipeg. And so I've been seeing a lot of great progress. There's great leaders that are doing work in Voices, Manitoba's uh, Youth and Care Network. If people don't know who that is, they are leaders that connect and work with young people that are aging out of the system. The other thing I think that's gone really well has been the connections and the relationships that we've made as Fearless R2W. R2W is, of course, the postal code in the north end of Winnipeg. And Fearless R2W is a nonprofit um, that I helped co-found with what I call super grannies, grandmothers that work hard to take care of their children and grandchildren despite challenges in CFS and intergenerational trauma. So Fearless R2W is also working to support parents bringing their children home and youth aging out of care. And so um, I think what I've been able to see in connecting and working with those different groups and organizations is that more and more folks are willing to sit and listen. Um, But in addition to just the sitting and listening part, folks are applying the things that they hear. And so I'm seeing more and more um, employment opportunities for parents. I'm seeing more and more supportive uh, education opportunities and more and more conversations around how we can increase safe and supportive housing towards reunification are beginning to happen. So those are the things that make me feel hopeful as we move forward. Right off the top, we said today, a big part of today was was to listen, to listen to those with a story. Michael, you have an endless supply of inspiration and uh, reasons uh, to speak to you, and we appreciate you making time for us on this uh, very day, very special day, uh, hopefully for, for all Canadians. Uh, we appreciate you immensely. Thank you very much. And just the last thing that I want to say is that um, I want to acknowledge that I lost my mother, who herself was an Indian residential school survivor last year, and that I do this work in her honor. Um, and I celebrate the fact that despite her challenges uh, within the child welfare system, she kept her language her whole life. And so that's one of the actions I'm going to be taking, looking to learn my Swampy Cree in a new language in her honor. Michael Redhead Champagne, our condolences and thank you once again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. On this National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, our next guest is a leader, a storyteller, a journalist, a broadcaster, and in the context of what we're about to discuss, an author. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of titles there, Brett, a lot of accomplishments. She's part of the Winnipeg International Writers Festival with her memoir book published earlier this year, My Privilege, My Responsibility. Let's say hello to Sheila North. Good morning, Sheila. Good morning. We appreciate you taking time on this uh, special day. Yesterday, we spoke with the director of the Writers' Festival, Charlene Deal, and she suggested that those who read your book will shake their heads at, at what you've had to go through. Was it difficult to write this memoir? Uh, yes, um, difficult in a lot of ways, but very easy in other ways. Um, difficult because, you know, I had to, of course, bring up the memories and and feel them again um, as I started to recall some of the things that, you know, that I recalled as a child and, and things that I've seen, yeah. When the book was released, I mean, you know, you're opening yourself up, your, your life story up uh, and putting it on these pages. So what did that feel like when that book came out? Like, was there any hesitation or perhaps fear that your words and your story would, would be rejected? Oh, my gosh, yeah. I was super vulnerable. I just felt exposed. I felt like I was insecure and just, you know, I was just unsure of what people would think of 
of my story and what I had to say, but also it was so personal. We went through five readings of it, uh, and I have to say the first one was definitely more raw and more um, detailed, so I had to scale it back to be more comfortable in allowing that information to be released. But yeah, it was was definitely a process that you had to be, uh, you had to use a lot of trust and, and just be prepared for any feedback. So it was I would say a task of courage for anyone that ever has written a memoir it definitely takes courage uh, to to let it go. I've said on the air that I often feel as though this microphone gives me an opportunity for free therapy to a certain extent because I get to share so many of my thoughts and my feelings with our radio friends and then Brett and Loren and I and one another with our guests. And so it's therapeutic from that standpoint. But what you mentioned how hard it was. How much can you share with us uh, some of the, the more difficult parts of this this book to write for you? I'm sitting in the very spot I wrote that I cried the most um, looking out my living room window. And I think the most difficult part was talking about what happened when I was a young mom with my ex-husband who was very abusive throughout our relationship, our seven-year relationship. And it was difficult to recall. I I feel like I've moved on and passed and forgiven him, even though these things were difficult and and the experiences are even unforgivable in some way, and they've impacted me and my children um, going forward. But, you know, I sitting here thinking about them, I actually felt sorry for him because what happened to him is what happened to a lot of people in Canada and the impacts of the, the heavy weight of colonization and just people being disrespected and not given a proper place and given proper respect happened to him. And so he turned it on us as a little family and, you know, it was devastating in many ways and we could have died. And um, so just remembering the magnitude of the pain of uh, inflicted through colonization through, through that way to my little family was really painful to, to start to remember and start to piece together again. Sheila, you mentioned the pain, but also that that forgiveness that you, you began to feel or reconcile, not to put words in your mouth, but just based on what you're saying, uh, you, you had some some realizations here. Do you get that without sitting down and sort of putting it all out on the page or dictating it or, or saying it out loud, so to speak? Absolutely. You know, I things happened the way they happened and sometimes it's beyond our control but there's a certain level that for myself and I imagine everyone else has to reach a point where they have to choose to forgive or just to hang on to the pain and and I chose to forgive quite a while ago um this was another healing part of the process and I'm glad that I had the opportunity to do it but you know it was important for me to to at least show a little bit of compassion and kindness for the benefit of my children. So that hatred and that pain doesn't, all of it doesn't pass on to them. And so I had to make a conscious decision to, to do that. And I credit my parents for teaching me about forgiveness and, and tolerance and all of those things. So I, I, I don't feel like it was a superhuman thing of me to do. It's just something that I was taught and it felt better to do it that way. 
Our guest is Sheila North. She has written a book called My Privilege, My Responsibility. It was published earlier this year and is being featured in the Winnipeg International Writers Festival. And Sheila North, of course, as well, the first female Grand Chief of Northern Manitoba. And the title of the book, My Privilege, My Responsibility, what is your privilege? (laughs) That I grew up in a beautiful home that uh, my mom and dad um, raised uh, their children in, and I, I I value them so much because you know I think there's a stereotype that all or most Indigenous people grow up in dysfunctional homes, and I could say that my parents probably could have turned that way, but I realized later on in, when I became an adult that they made a conscious decision to be uh, parents that would would not allow alcohol in their home, that wouldn't allow fighting, that wouldn't allow any violence of any kind in their home. And even though they experienced all of those things when they were children, my mom went went to residential school, my dad was in day schools, uh, he was an altar boy, and I didn't hear completely all the stories that they've gone through because, um, believe it or not, they never talked about it to us. It wasn't until we were adults ourselves we started to hear these stories and ask some questions. Um, but, you know, when, when you look at their past and what they chose to do as parents and how they raised us, my siblings and I are all working. We're all doing something with our lives. We all have careers, and we take care of our families. And that's to the credit of of my parents, my Cree parents from northern Manitoba who lived on, on a reserve in an isolated community. You, you could say that they were probably living in poverty because they were but they did their best and they did a really good job. So I feel very privileged in that sense. It's a wonderful story. I'm thinking about my baby brother, my youngest brother, who uh, never forget one morning we were all in my mom's room. Uh, I'm the oldest of five, Sheila. And my baby brother just looked around and he said, he must maybe four or five. He says, you know, mom, we're so rich. We're so lucky yeah. to have this, you know, <laughs> and it's like, oh my gosh, do they say out of the mouths of babes? But I, I get the impression exactly. that's sort of what you're talking about. We didn't, we didn't grow up with everything. We didn't go out without a lot, but we did go out with, grow up without some things. But I get the sense that sort of the same, same sort of household you grew up, grew up in. It was the, it was the love, the affection, the connection within the people under that roof that that made it a, a wonderful place to to live. Exactly, exactly. And I had the privilege of living close to the school that I went to and I got to go home every day and have a hot lunch and I had a hot breakfast and, you know, come home and and get ready for supper. And I, I, Meals were obviously very important to me. <laughs> but, you know, I when I look back at it and sometimes a few days I wrote about it in the book, but I would stay back at the school if my parents were out of town and the lunches that they got at the school was very, very minimal and probably even unhealthy. I mean, it kept people, all the kids, fed and and probably, you know, okay for the day. But compared to what kids need every day to really maximize their, you know, capacity to be functioning students, good functioning students, they could have had more nutritious meals, but they didn't. And so those little points I remember in my life, wow, I was like a lucky little kid going home to have hot soup and big sandwiches and things like that. (laughs) And before we let you go, Sheila, with today being the second day of Truth and Reconciliation, what's your assessment of of how the last year has gone in terms of moving towards that reconciliation? I 
had a chance to talk to a group of uh, mostly non-Indigenous people last night at a fundraiser that I was at, and I was asked to speak about uh, truth and reconciliation. And just before I did that, I was talking to my friend who I was sitting with, and he's a, I'll say, a very wealthy businessman. And he was he was asking me, like, when will it be enough? And I don't think he was asking in an ignorant way. He was just curious. He really wanted to be open and honest ask me when will it be enough it feels like we're just you know constantly being asked to give more and more and i i had to say to him and then when i spoke at the in front of the crowd i said don't go weary don't get weary in this work of reconciliation there is a lot of work to do but when you look at it in context of 150 years ago and to now we have all come a long way we still have a long way to go but right now it might feel uncomfortable it might feel you know, that we're not getting anywhere, but we really are in the bigger picture. And, you know, I think that there's still more things that we can do, all of us, to to move towards a better future for my grandson, my two-year-old grandson, um, and all of our grandkids and our children. Um, but there are real movements happening right now, and we can't grow weary. We just have to keep doing and doing our parts where we have an opportunity. Right now, if the, if the only thing you can do to show support is to hang an orange shirt outside your door or even an orange planter or an orange anything outside your door, that will do a lot. Because when when you see, when people drive by, they'll be reminded to remember what the day is about. Or if an Indigenous person sees it, they'll see some allyship and bring a little bit of hope. And I think that we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go yet. Sheila North, the author of My Privilege, My Responsibility. Thank you very much for joining us, Sheila. This has been a real pleasure. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you.